So we've been talking about what does it look like to live in light of Christ's return? And what does that mean? Does that mean that we should just stop doing everything, go find our nicest bed sheet and climb up to a mountain and lay down and just get engaged into the sky? Is that what it means to live in light of Christ's return? Or does it mean that we should just resign ourselves to a doom and gloom philosophy? We just start awfulizing everything and we're just like, nothing matters. I don't really care. It's all going to burn up. God's going to bring judgment and I'm just going to go complacent. What does it look like to live in light of Christ's return? You need to know something. God wants us to live in a particular manner. Jesus spoke often of his return. It is a promise. And if you don't have 1 Thessalonians 5, like 1 through 11, kind of in your bank of understanding and direction on how you live, you might have the wrong orientation in life. You might find that you've actually become rather self-centered than Christ-centered because There is a particular way in which God wants his people to live in light of Christ's return. And so we started looking at this last week, chapter 5, beginning in verses 1 through 3. God wants his people, first of all, clearly aware of the implications and all that is entailed with Christ's return. So if you remember, uh, chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, talks about that when Christ comes, he is going to, first of all, come in the air, and there is going to be this event where he's literally going to catch up all those believers who remain on the earth at this time. It's an event known as the rapture, and those who are dead in Christ, those who have passed away, they are actually going to receive these resurrected bodies, and that we will always be together with the Lord. And this is spelled out in detail in 4, 13 through 18. And then what will begin is this seven-year period of judgment known as the day of the Lord. And God wants his people clearly aware of what's going to take place. And so he says, chapter 5, verse 1, Now as to the time and epics, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. You don't have to have anything written to you because, first of all, if you're a Christian, I believe you're not going to face the judgments of the day of the Lord. Now, I want you to know that there are good people, Bible scholars and students who hold to different positions that actually think that actually as Christians, Christians are going to go through all these intense tribulations and judgment. Uh, The more I study the scriptures, the more I'm convinced that we're not. And passages like this drive my convictions. But he says, you don't have to worry about it. Not only are you not going to face it, uh, he's already informed you of what you need to know. He says there are characteristics of this day of the Lord. And we looked at him last week. He says, verse two, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. The day of the Lord is a deliverance day for God's people, but it is also going to be a day of destruction and judgment for all those who have rejected Christ. You need to know something about God. We like to emphasize that God is a God of love, and he absolutely is. But he is equally so a God of justice. He's the God who has decided and established what truly is right or wrong. He's the God who has defined morality. I know right now in our culture, we think that we define morality based upon popular opinion. I've got news for you. God is God, and he is the one who is upholding justice. And that is why he sent his son. He sent his son, Jesus, to live a perfect life. You can imagine the eternal son of God enters into humanity. He lives a perfect life. He fulfills all the law. He is completely righteous. He dies and pays the penalty for sin. 
And he rises three days later to offer all who will believe in him genuine forgiveness, eternal life. All of Christ's righteousness is transferred on to your account if you will believe. But if you reject Jesus Christ, you're like, eh, I've heard that, but I'm not going to believe. Justice will be satisfied. God placed his wrath upon his son where God, Jesus literally dies in our place. But if you reject Christ, then you will face his judgment. And that judgment was, is what's inferred to as the day of the Lord. It'll be a seven-year period. It also talks about even after the thousand-year reign of Christ. And he says, there are characteristics of this day of the Lord. 5-2. For you yourselves full, know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. It'll be unannounced. You know that a thief doesn't post on the internet or on Instagram where he's going to hit next. No, he's going to come unannounced. And so will the day of the Lord. There is no event that we're waiting that will precede the day of the Lord. It's going to come suddenly. In fact, it'll only be unannounced. It'll be unexpected. Look at verse three. While they were saying peace and safety. Peace has the idea of, hey, there's no reason to be alarmed. Safety has the idea that you're, you're preserved from any sort of external threats. There's no God that's going to bring judgment upon the earth. What a joke. That's what the world will say. But notice, he says, while, the, while they are saying they, referring not to the believers, they, the people that are still in the world, they're saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly, unexpected, like labor pains upon a woman with child and they will not escape. Just like a pregnant lady knows that, you know, the baby's coming. I can count. I'm in my ninth month. But you don't know really when the baby's going to come exactly. But once those labor pains hit, all of a sudden you know that that child is on its way. And that's what it's going to be like with the day of the Lord. You can certainly see that there's a buildup, but suddenly it's going to hit. And it'll be unannounced. It'll be unexpected. And notice the end of verse 3. It'll be un avoidable they will not escape there's no escape clause once it hits that's why it's imperative that you believe the world is just lulling people to sleep it's got everybody just kind of deceived like you don't have to worry about god and the god of judgment and god bringing wrath uh, 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 uh. the second coming of jesus uh, no 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 it's pretty hard to deny his first coming right it's hard to deny his resurrection but there are not a lot of people talking about his return but Jesus is coming back and he wants us to live in light of his return. That means he wants us clearly aware of what is to take place. But let me tell you something else that this text reveals to us. Not only does God want us clearly aware of what is about to take place, he wants us fully alert. You know, ever since even even the times of Peter, we're talking, you know, shortly after Christ is resurrected, people have been saying, yeah, you keep talking about Jesus coming back. Well, like, where is he? I mean, it's been 2,000 years. 2,000. Can you count? 2,000 years. And Jesus hasn't come back yet. Maybe he forgot. Or maybe he's not coming back ever. You need to know something. This does not mean that God does not keep his promises that he hasn't come back in the last 2,000 years. What it means is that God doesn't follow our calendars. You know, Peter wrote about this, Second Peter 3, 8. He says, you know, for, for the Lord, a day is like a 1,000 years, and a 1,000 years is like a day. In God's timetable, it's been like only kind of a couple days. But I assure you, he will return 
and judgment could come. And look at verse 4. He wants us fully alert. He says, but you, brethren. Notice, remember, like in verse 3, they, those who are not in Christ, but you, you're a part of the family of God. Brothers, sisters, but you, brethren, you've been adopted into the family. You are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. You're not in darkness. You're, you're awake. You're alert. You're in the day. And let me just talk to you about darkness. You see, darkness is a theme that you find in the Old Testament. It's frequently referred into the New Testament. This is what darkness is. It describes someone who is spiritually dead. They lack a redemptive relationship with God. They are separated. They are morally and spiritually blind. There's an absence of holiness. They're, they're disobedient. You're in darkness. And all of us, at some point, have existed in darkness. Where you, you simply don't understand God. You don't believe. You don't trust. Christ isn't important. And what God does is he literally rescues people out of darkness. Like it says in Colossians 1.13, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. God literally takes people from darkness and he brings them into light, into the light of his kingdom, into the kingdom of the beloved son. And what God does is he actually shows you your need for Christ. If you're here today... Let me just tell you what darkness looks like in your life. You've got this God-shaped void, and you're trying to fill it with anything but God. You've tried entertainment. You've tried people. You've tried importance. You've tried money. You perhaps have tried sex. You've tried anything just to fill this void, but it keeps leaving you empty. And furthermore, God has given you a conscience, and you know that you have violated what you know to be right. You don't have to think very far to think about occasions that you've lied or stolen or swore or blasphemed or cheated or done a lot worse. And all of this brings a sense of like, it's not right. I'm not at peace. All of this is meant to point you to Jesus. You see, Jesus is the one who gives forgiveness. Jesus is the one who brings healing, spiritual wholeness. You got, you got gaps, don't you? You got problems. It's Christ. It's Christ and Christ alone that truly can bring the help and the salvation that you need. And so that's the beauty of it. We once were in darkness, but we see, and it's a work of God, our need for Christ. And he draws us to believe in him. And look at this. He says, you're not of the darkness. You're of the day, right? That the day of this Lord would overtake you like a thief. Because look, he says, verse 5, for you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness when he talks about sons there in verse 5 it speaks of one who has a special relationship or a likeness to someone in semitic languages like hebrew for instance the son of meant that you had the quality of or the characteristics of someone like the son of and you'd have the characteristics of like your parents or the son of a law you had characteristics you followed the law and you need to see what he's driving at here is he's driving at our sense of identity. God wants his people fully alert. If you're awaiting the second coming of Jesus, he wants you fully alert. He does not want you functioning like Jason Bourne. Okay? You haven't seen that? Jason Bourne? You know, he's got the, Jason Bourne, like in the Bourne identity. This guy doesn't know who he is, 
where he came from, who his family is, where he's supposed to do, what he's supposed to go to. He doesn't know. He's clueless, right? He's trying to figure it out. Friends, God doesn't want you with an identity crisis. And if you have one, you're not really sure who you belong to. Well, then it probably shouldn't surprise you that you're kind of functioning in the darkness. So he says, for you are all sons of light and sons of day. You're not like the Jason Bourne, the CIA main guy who's all confused. Actually, there is clarity. What does it mean to be fully alert? To be fully alert as a son of light or a son of the day. Remember, you know, Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. He follows me. You'll not walk in darkness, but you'll walk in the light. Remember that? John 8, 12. So what does that look like to walk as a son of the light or son of day? Well, first of all, it means to have a strong sense of our identity in Christ. We know who Jesus is, what he's accomplished, the salvation he gives. And we understand that by faith in Christ, we literally are united inextricably and unconditionally to him. Like he says in Ephesians 3.17, for Christ dwells in our hearts by faith. We are literally indwelled by the very spirit of Christ. He has marked us out and sealed us. We are saved. We are being sanctified. And one day we'll be glorified because we've been united with Christ. And it's our sense of identity that causes us to live differently. And he actually gives us some spiritual empowerment to do just that. To live fully alert as a child of the light or a child of the day means that we have a strong sense of our identity in Christ. But it also means that we have a strong orientation to intentionally live in harmony with God's revelation and his reality. As those who are awake, son of the day, son of the light, that means that we're looking to God and his word to guide our path. Like it says in Psalm 119, that great psalm that extols the virtues of being a student of the word and of the word itself. He says in verses 129 and 130, your testimonies are wonderful. Therefore, my soul observes them. The unfolding of your words gives light. As I read, as I understand, it gives light to my path. It gives understanding to the simple. That's how God's word functions. If you are a son of the light, a son of the day, he wants you in this book. He wants you to understand it and to apply it because God shapes our understanding, our behavior, our convictions. They all come as God leads through his spirit, through his word. And he wants you not walking in darkness if you're really a Christian. Like remember in Ephesians 5, 8, he said, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord Walk as children in the light. You used to be without God, without purpose, without identity, without salvation, without the spirit of God within you. And your life reflected that, right? My sure did. Apart from knowing Christ, very evident sinner. You come to know Jesus. His spirit is placed in your life. All of a sudden you have a hunger to now start going God's way. His word plays a whole new role in your life. We're not supposed to walk in darkness. Our manner of life is to be in keeping with who Christ is and what God has revealed in his word. Or like, remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount when he's saying, hey, let me tell you what it looks like to be one of my disciples. You are a light of the world. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, 
but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. And then he said this in verse 16. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they might see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. You see, God's plan is to shine his light through his people. That's why we walk as sons of day, as sons of light. The problem is this. Obviously, there were some in the Thessalonian church, and perhaps we got some Christians today, that though they knew this, they were disregarding it. Whether they were in denial, or they were just distracted by the world, or perhaps they were deceptively influenced and deceived by the world and all that the world was offering. Friends, walking with God in the light, it's difficult. It's kind of like driving is dangerous. You know, just, the, just driving alone is dangerous. But it becomes far more hazardous when you engage in various dangers. I was doing some research on the causes of car accidents in America. And uh, this one lawyer had listed the top 25. Let me give you the top three. Number three uh, is drunk driving. Uh, it's estimated by mothers of drunk, uh, against drunk driving that 300,000 incidents of drunk driving occur daily. It's the number three uh, reason why there are so many car accidents, which, by the way, there is roughly about 10 million each year. Number two, speeding. Speeding contributes to about a third of all the car accidents. It's the idea that, yeah, you see the posted speed limit, but you know that they are wrong, right? The police are just there to delay you, and so you know better, and you're a really good driver, right? And so you violate the posted speed limit. A third of the car accidents are because of people who are speeding. But the number one, and number one by far, is this. Distracted driving. Whether you're talking on the phone, texting, eating, reading, or grooming yourself, or doing all of the above while driving, it is the number one reason why there are so many accidents. I'll just tell you that if you have a handheld device, like a phone, in your hand while you're driving, and you're trying to use it, you are four times likely to have a car accident. If you are texting, thinking like, oh, I just want to send a special little message to my mother or my friend, I want them to know I just went to the grocery store, you are 23 times likely to have a car accident and to cause one. And I tell you this because all of these hazards, they're actually unnecessary. But you've made choices that lead to this kind of disastrous result. Friends, that's why he says we are to be fully alert. Put the phone down. It's really not that important. We made it a long ways driving without it, and it's causing a lot of problems. That's why he says, verse 6, So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. We are to be attentive. When you are asleep, what, has, when you're asleep, what happens? Man, you have no idea what's kind of going on, right? When I'm out, like, I'm out, I'm passed out. And to make matters worse, like, I wear earplugs, right? So I, I am not going to be disturbed. It doesn't matter what's going on, you know? And that's how it is when we're asleep. We just don't know what's going on. When you are spiritually asleep, kind of slumbering, kind of just like passing out, daydreaming, what happens is it's like you become morally and spiritually disengaged. 
You're living without your conscience. You, you move into a position of spiritual indifference. You move to misfellowship, missed opportunities, missed opportunities to even glorify God. It's this kind of like you're asleep. And that's why he says, we're not to be like that. Look at verse six. He says, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. Alert has the idea that you're awake. It speaks of activity. And sober has the idea that you're self-controlled, that you live a disciplined life. It doesn't mean that you're grim-faced and you're just a, a bore and you're like morose. No, it has, it has the idea that you are thinking clearly. When you are drunk, when you are inebriated, you are reckless and out of control. But when you're sober, you're thinking clearly. That's what this text is calling for. He's calling for us to have a sane outlook in life, that we see things clearly, that we're not complacent, and that we're, when we face difficulties, we don't just get overwhelmed with our frustrations and our fears. Or that, you know, like every day, every day we hear of the worst stories in the world. Did you know that? Every day we're exposed to just like horrendous heartache. And so what do you do? Well, if you're spiritually asleep, what can happen is you kind of forget about God and Jesus and you just get, work yourself into an emotional frazzle. And or you just kind of resign yourself like to doom and gloom. But in actuality, what we do is we pray about the tragic news, but we don't lose heart. We remember that God is in the equation and he and we don't give up because Satan would love for you to get up. He, he just to give up. He wants you to think about like God's really not that involved or care that much or even that able. No, he wants us awake and alert. And I'll tell you this. We can go through our days calmly, creatively, with a sense of joy, even in the midst of difficulty, because we know that our God is sovereign and that he is good. I will tell you this. Outlook influences outcomes. How you're seeing what's taking place, the, the framework by which you look at it, whether God is a part of the equation and Jesus is coming back or not, influences your behavior and how you live. That's why he says... You don't want to be like the unsaved people. They might be trying to create some sort of false sense of paradise or false sense of security. And that's really what happens. Like, you know, like, did you know, like alcohol? This was in a British medical journal. Did you know that alcohol is the most harmful drug? Now, there are some deadlier ones, you know, like heroin and crack cocaine. But the most harmful drug by far is alcohol. It's addictive nature, how it harms the body, its role on society. Just uh, after first service, a lady told me about going to an operation for a, a guy who's been an alcoholic. And now we've got a serious problem. The National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism notes the harmfulness and actually put a price tag on what alcoholism does as an annual bill in America. What do you think it is? I want you to think, you better think a big number. Got it? What, what do you think it is? The annual bill for alcoholism. This is what it is. It's the whopping price tag of nearly $235 billion each year in the United States when you look at the medical, social, and economical costs of alcohol abuse, the families that are shredded, all the problems that come with it. I mean, 80,000 80, people die every year from alcohol-related either illness or disease. Friends, that is a world that is inebriated and is paying the price. And you'll eventually face the judgment if you don't turn and trust Christ. Let me just tell you what fully alert looks like. 
I got this email a couple weeks ago from a lady in our church, and uh, she wrote after our Easter services, she said, I am so blessed to be one of the many to be able to participate in giving hope to those who are hopeless. And she went on to talk about how she has opportunities to do this. And she goes on to write, every time I think of what Jesus did for me, the tears just start flowing. He's restored my health. And she talks about some other things that God has restored in her life. And he has given me a new purpose for living. Although I can't imagine the pain he suffered, I am humbled by what Christ did for us all. And then she goes on to write, having been obedient to Christ and made him truly Lord of my life, this was the best Easter ever. Why is that? Because this lady is fully alert. She's awake. She's not slumbering off and asleep. She is awake to the realities of God and his word. Friends, we want to be fully alert. You don't want to be like that uh, mechanic uh, in Philadelphia. Remember May 5th, 2004? You know, ever since 9-11, our nation's been on a heightened sense of alert. In May 5th, 2004, there was a conductor at the Pennsylvania's Transit Authority, and he noticed uh, what looked to be like an electronic transmitter right next to the real, very busy 30th Street station. So they notified the authorities, Department of Homeland Security, FBI, they just came converging in mass. And lo and behold, they found right next to the tracks a motion detector designed to send a signal to a nearby receiver. And man, it all got tense and amped up. Well, when all of this is taking place and all of these authorities are converging onto the 30th Street station, finally a train mechanic stepped forward and he admitted to installing the transmitter. Now, was this guy a terrorist? Was he like a really disgruntled employee, really mad and upset? Can I kind of get some payback? No, actually not. He was uh, just a mechanic that worked the night shift. He worked graveyard shift. And he, uh, he didn't like it that his boss could surprise him when he was taking a nap at night while he was supposedly working. So he installed this little transmitter and the, the, his supervisor would trip it, which would set off alarm. And when that did, he all of a sudden looked like he was very busy and doing his job. Friends, if you think that, whoa, well, when Jesus comes back, there's going to be some sort of alarm that's going to go off, and then I'm going to kick it into high gear. Then you're going to find me faithful. Then I'm going to really finally start talking to people about Jesus that I really care about. Then I'm going to serve. No. Whatever you think fully alert would look like, if you knew Jesus was coming back this afternoon, that's what you should be doing now. That's what this text is calling for. And you see, what we need to do, friends... We need to take life and Jesus seriously. He's coming back. He wants us to live clearly aware and fully alert. That means that there's a love for Jesus, a desire for holiness. We got actually some compassion for people. We care. You know, you don't want to be like sleeping and driving. You know, like you ever had that experience where you kind of get kind of drowsy when you're driving? That's dangerous. I mean, you do that. You need to like turn up the radio, open the window, you need to pull over, you need some rest, you need some coffee, you need some Mountain Dew, whatever you need, but you can't continue in that condition, right? I remember when I was working in Boise Cascade when I was working my master's degree, and I worked in this warehouse, and uh, there was a, a lot of interesting people. One of them was this guy named Tim, and Tim, man, it was even painful to watch him walk. You know, something had happened. He was kind of a recluse. He wouldn't let people get near him or close to him. I tried to befriend him, and eventually he'd start talking with me, and one day at his locker, he showed me these pictures of this car wreck that he'd been in years ago. 
And he said, I, I fell asleep driving my truck. And he shows me this mangled truck. <laughs> it was hard to imagine that someone came out of it. But Tim did. But he never walked the same after that. Had some pretty significant implications in his life. Friends, you need to understand something. Spiritual drowsiness, why, it has major implications on your life. What does that spiritual drowsiness look like? I mean, how do you even like, know if you're kind of starting to slip in there in that kind of zone? Well, I'll tell you that church becomes just a bit boring. In fact, oh, it becomes rather so very optional. Oh, today, this morning, Sunday morning, oh, it's kind of cloudy. It might, maybe it might rain. I'm made of sugar. I might melt. You know what? I'll just, I'll just, I'll just lay in bed here. Get the Sunday paper. I'm just going to chill. Have a nice morning. Relax. Um, the whole idea of, of prayer eh, just kind of drops off a bit. You find yourself not caring so much. You rarely, if ever, read the scriptures. Uh, you have no desire whatsoever to serve Christ. Other people do that. In fact, you try to block those things out of your mind. Now you're trying to feel like, you know, what sort of fun stuff just can I just engage myself with? And what happens is you slip off into a spiritual slumber. If you're even close to that state, what you want to do is you want to ask God to renew your heart. You say, God, I sense and see a coolness toward you. God, revive my heart. Rekindle a first love for you. And it might be a good idea if you're around some other Christians who are truly fired up for Christ. I'll tell you, that is one of the reasons why I love being here at Fellowship Bible Church. There are so many people that truly have a great love for the Lord. I mean, you can't help but be fired up just to be around all of you. You just touch them, you see them, like, whoa, my kind of people. Why? Because they have a passion for the living Lord. You do not want to be making the serious life decisions in a spiritual coma. Think about it. If you're a teenager in your 20s, you're making the decisions about your, your idea of morality, likely who you might marry, your occupation. Do you really think that'd be a good idea to just like spiritually be comatose? Or you think of it if you're a parent or you're single or a grandparent. Your influence, if you're spiritually out of it, you're just kind of like asleep. Why, friends... You're missing out on so many of the opportunities. And it's not only affecting you, it's affecting your kids, your grandkids, your friends, our church. That's why this text is like an alarm clock going off. You know, if you miss the alarm clock, there's some consequences to be paid, right? You miss your flight. I've done that. That was painful. Uh, you're late for work. You uh, miss your workout. You don't spend time with God because you're, you slept through the alarm. This is God's alarm clock. And it's going off. God wants us fully alert because the sun's coming back. And finally, God wants us actively engaged. He wants us clearly aware, fully alert, and he wants us actively engaged. Look at verse 8. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love. Now Paul is using one of his favorite metaphors, and that is military armor. The breastplate, I mean, that covers all the vital organs. It'd have metal, sometimes it'd be, it'd be covered with leather. And he says, put on the breastplate of faith. Faith is a dependence, a reliance, a trust in God. It's believing God. If you want a simple definition of faith, faith is taking God at his word. And he says, put it on daily, put on this armor. And love has the idea that you have a love for God. And a love for others. And it's something that God has to cultivate in our lives. When you put on love, it keeps you from getting bitter. It allows you to forgive. When you put on love, you take the initiative then rather than waiting for someone else to take care. You actually, you know what? I love. God put it on. You know, 
This kind of armor is so critical to your well-being. Uh, some of you have heard of Bob Vernon, uh, L.A. police officer. He's now a retired uh, Christian. But he's had like these really interesting stories. And I've heard him speak before on a, when I was listening to Focus on the Family. In a book called The Encourager, uh, Charles Mylander writes of an experience that Bob Vernon had that I never actually knew that he had faced. It was sunrise, kind of uh, dawning in L.A. He was a motorcycle police officer. And he's sitting there and he sees this red truck just go blitzing right through a stop sign. He's like, oh, you know, here's a guy must be late for work. So he pulls in behind him, puts on the emergency lights, and this red truck pulls over. Now, unbeknownst to Bob Vernon, our police officer, this guy in the truck is thinking this. How in the world do the police already know? For he had just got done robbing a convenience store, so he puts his hand on the gun that he used just to hold up that store. Bob Vernon walks up and goes, good morning, sir. I would just like to ask you. And this guy in the truck takes that that gun and shoots him right in the chest, knocks him back seven feet. And then, much to the complete surprise of the guy in the truck, Bob Vernon gets back up and he pulls out his service revolver, shoots once through the open window, shadows the front windshield, shoots it again. And that round goes right through the door and shreds through this guy's leg. And that guy throws the money and the gun out. So stop shooting, stop shooting. Because he's like, what in the world? You know what happened here? Kevlar. You know, the police, they wear these dozens of layers of Kevlar, only three-eighths inch thick, uh, three-eighths inch thick, but it's enough to stop that bullet. Friends, you need to know something. If you do not have the breastplate of faith and love, it's likely that you're not demonstrating a lot of either. You got to put it on. God, cultivate this in me. And notice what else he says. And put on the helmet of the hope of salvation. That's the armor that would cover your head and your cheekbones. And friends, if you're in a battle, your head is important. You want to keep it in more ways than one, right? You don't want to lose your head. And friends, that's why God gives us hope, the hope of Christ, the hope of the gospel. And he wants us to be remembering hope because Satan wants us to despair, think we've lost our salvation. Satan wants us to think that God doesn't care, that Jesus isn't returning. But when you put on hope, what it does is it preserves you and gets you thinking clearly and keeps you from going into that emotional abyss. Remember December 8th, 2004? Uh, we had Donald Rumsfeld. He was a defense uh, secretary of defense. He went to Kuwait to address the troops. And it was, it was all publicized. They had all the news cameras there. They were all rolling on this kind of live event. We got to see our soldiers there. And there was something that just completely stopped Rumsfeld in his tracks when Army Specialist Thomas Wilson of the 278th Regimental Combat Team asked this question. In fact, here's a picture of it when it took place. There you see Specialist Wilson. He asked this. Why do we soldiers have to dig through local landfills for pieces of scrap metal and compromised ballistic glass to up-armor our vehicles? Rumsfeld, who is pretty unflappable, was dumbfounded. didn't even know what to say. Obviously, Specialist Wilson felt vulnerable, not protected. He's being sent into battle without the proper protection. I got news for you. Our Supreme Commander... He sends us into the battle with everything that we need. The question is, are you going to put it on? Isn't that what the text says? Put it on. Faith, love, hope. And notice what he says. Verse 9. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
We're not destined for wrath. God has actually selected us for himself. And when he talks about salvation, for obtaining salvation, salvation has like three phases. There's past salvation, past salvation, when we are actually being saved from the power and pollution of sin. There is the present, or excuse me, that's from the guilt of sin. That's what past salvation, guilt and the penalty for sin. Present salvation is when we're being saved from the power and the pollution of sin. But there's a sense of future salvation where one day we'll be saved from the very presence of sin. And God says, we're not destined for wrath. Why? We're destined for being obtaining salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he goes on to say in verse 10, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. No matter what goes on, whether you're alive or if you should pass away, we will always be together with him. Friends, that is the beauty of the gospel. And so he says, therefore, I want you actively engaged. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing. Encourage. Help people find fresh strength. Build up one another. Make intentional, intentional investments where you are strengthening and helping people deepen in their relationship with Jesus. That's what we are to do if we're really looking forward to Jesus coming back. I love that quote by C.S. Lewis of Mere Christianity. When he simply said this, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Friends, we need to be ready. We need to be gathered. We need to be encouraging. We need to be building one another up. It's one of the reasons we come to church, why we're in a small group. Why we value discipleship? Because we're getting ready for Christ's return. Um, there was a Robert Murray McShane. He was a Scottish pastor uh, in the early 1800s. He, he actually died at age 29. He had an amazing ministry. But he died young. And he used to go around asking people, do you think Jesus Christ will return today? And most people would say, well, no, nah, not today. And then he would just simply say, <clears throat> well, then, my friend, you better be ready. For the Son of Man is coming in an hour which you do not expect. Friends, we are living in light of Christ's return when we are ready every day. Robbie Robbins was an Air Force pilot during the first Iraq war. And after his 300th mission, the military surprised him and said, we're sending you and your team home. You're done. You're able to go home. And so surprise, surprise, they were able to fly their plane over the ocean land in Massachusetts where they got into a car and they drove all night. They didn't, they didn't alert their families. They were themselves were surprised that they actually got to go home. And so Robbie Robbins thought he would surprise his family and they drove all night. Sun's coming up. He gets out of the car when his buddies drop him off and he sees that on the garage door, there is this welcome home dad. And he's like, how would, how would they have known? Wait, I, no one told him. I didn't call them. So how do they know? So he, he walks into his house, and his kids, they're half-dressed, and they're getting ready for school. And they're all like, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. And they're all excited to see him. And then his wife, uh, she comes walking down, and here she is. She is all dressed up. I mean, she's got her makeup on. Her hair looks good. She's looking sharp. And she's wearing this yellow dress that's all been pressed. And he's like, how did you know? And she said, as she's crying, she says, I didn't. But once we knew the war was over, we knew that you'd be home one of these days. 
And we knew that you tried to surprise us. So we were ready every day. And friends, that's what Jesus wants from us. He wants us ready every day. And we know that we're living in light of Christ's return when we're ready every day. We're clearly aware. We're fully alert. And friends, we are actively engaged. Let's pray.